Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. My guest today is Reza Eslan. He is arguably the most famous and influential scholar of religion in the United States. You probably know him from his bestseller about the life and times of Jesus called Zealot, and before that, his book about Islam called No God But God. We have a pretty wide-ranging conversation. We discuss Reza's recollection of his family's escape from Iran during the revolution and his own personal relationship with religion, including Reza's conversion to evangelical Christianity in high school. I think you can tell I was very jazzed up to speak with Reza about religion. The academic study of religion has always been an enduringly fascinating topic to me, to the point where I once considered going the scholar of religion route, but I didn't. I went the foreign policy route, and now I have this podcast. We kick off with a discussion about his forthcoming series on CNN, then transition to a longer conversation about his life, his career, his intellectual development, his religious identities. So we do get a little wonky and toss around some religion jargon, but I have faith that you will be able to follow along and enjoy it nonetheless. And here it is, my conversation with Reza Eslan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The show is called Believer, and the best way to think about it is it's the Anthony Bourdain show, but faith instead of food. So in the same way that he goes around the world um, eating food, but really using food as a window into other cultures, other worlds. We do the same thing with religious traditions, but it's not a pedagogical show. In other words, we're not going around learning about other religions. What we're really doing is experiencing those religions through their rituals, through their practices. So I will actually go around um, the planet taking part in these rituals, becoming a part of these religious communities, doing what they do, and by sort of experiencing what I'm experiencing, hopefully what it'll do is give you a sense not just of other worldviews, other cultures, other faiths, but more importantly, a sense of how connected we are, uh, particularly when it comes to religion. I think when people watch an hour of this show, they're going to see things that look unfamiliar and exotic, a little bit foreign, uh, perhaps a little bit weird and scary. But in the course of the hour, uh, my hope is, is that they'll come to realize that it's actually not as foreign or exotic as they think, that the sentiment behind a lot of these rituals and these practices are really familiar, but that the, the symbols, the metaphors that are used are a little bit different. So what are those, some of those common threads, um, you know, between rituals, you know, that you know of, you know, now as, as a scholar of religion? Well, the purpose of rituals in many ways is to enact mythologies. 
you know, so religions have basically two fundamental features to them. There's myths and there's rituals. The myths are the stories that give um, meaning, you know, an explanation uh, for the human condition, the relationship between creator and creation. And these myths uh, are really sort of the language that a religion uses to communicate its ideals, its values, its worldviews. Um, by the way, I should mention that the word myth is a, a, a problematic word because it has come to mean, in the modern parlance, falsehood. Um, that's its connotation. But that is not the denotation of myth. The dictionary definition of myth is not falsehood. The dictionary definition of myth is nothing more than stories about gods and goddesses. But those stories, of course, are as much about you know, an explanation of the past as they are an explanation of the present. They're a means of providing a community of faith with a sense of identity, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to remind them of who they are, what their values are. Now, those myths are one thing. It's one thing to sort of, you know, talk about these things, to, to communicate them, but you have to actually experience myths, and that's where rituals come in. Rituals, if you will, are really the, the participatory drama for um, religious communities. In many ways, the myths are um, a kind of script for these rituals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whether it's a, a harvest myth that about, you know, where the grain comes from, and, and so therefore in enacting the harvest ritual, you are just sort of uh, giving sort of some sort of action to the mythology mm -hmm. itself. It's sort of like I'm, I'm um, thinking. It's sort of like you know that the Passover Seder reenacts the myth of Moses, which you know is a common myth. You have like Sargon of Agra. Is, was you know the, the different um, yes. you know different religions have that sort of similar story, origin story. The Jews just seem right. to have survived. That's right. That's right. The myth becomes the script for mm -hmm. the ritual. Exactly. And so we're we're very much interested in the ritual. And, and, to ex and, you know, my job is to go out and experience the ritual, and in that experience, sort of bring the myth to life. And I think that what's remarkable about these myths and the rituals themselves is that what they are expressing, you know, a desire for communion with uh, God or with a, some sort of transcendent presence, the, the notion of creating a community through uh, ritualized action, mm -hmm. a, an attempt to connect yourself you know, to a historic past, right? We do our Passover Seder the way we do it now, like we have always done it. And it, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a reminder that our community is 5,000 years old and the, that it, it is the expression of a promise made to, you know, our father Abraham, etc., etc. Um, so in taking part in a, in a community's rituals, that really is the most profound window to understanding what the community values, who it is, how they see themselves. I'm, I'm transported back to this religious uh, ritual I participated in as a participant observer. I'm an old sociologist of religion major, uh, comparative religion major. And in 2002 in London, um, as part of you know academic research, I participated in this UFO uh, group called the Aetherius Society, and they're a group of really highly ah. educated uh, individuals who stand around this crystal in the middle of the room with their hands open, chanting uh, an old, you know, uh, I think it was, it was like an old sutra, like Om Mani Pani Om, and 
you know, by their power, they're, they're sort of infusing this crystal with positive energy that's then reflected up to the UFO and back down to influence events on the ground to, you know, enact progressive change somehow. Like they think they brought right. down the Berlin Wall right. that way. It was like super interesting. Um, and I've always been fascinated by, fascinated by this particular line of inquiry. So I, I'm really looking forward to, to checking out your show. And you should check them out, the Aetherius hey. Society. I don't know if they're still around, but they were at least 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was really interesting. Um, so have you, I mean, have you had a religious experience, a profound religious experience in, in your life? Yeah, I, I have. I mean, well, you know, I can say that I've had numerous, uh, profound spiritual experiences. Um, I did have a, a kind of very emotional conversion experience when I was in high school that I've written about in my, um, most recent book, Zealot. Uh, where you know I went to an evangelical camp and heard the gospel story and really had um, you know uh, a a come to Jesus moment. I was born again, um, and it was a really you know deeply emotional experience for me. Uh, you know, a few years later, I went to university and began studying religion and particularly the New Testament and the history of Christianity, and, and discovered that a lot of the things that I had been told was was incorrect. But that only just further interested me, made me further interested, I should say, in um, in the study of the Bible, the study of religion and religiosity. But I feel like uh, because I've had that experience, I really can walk the line between true belief and then also the, the skeptic's eye. You know, as a, as a scholar of, of religion, as somebody who studies the religions of the world, um, you know, I, I sort of have a deep understanding of what religion is, you know, where it comes from, the, the man-made qualities of it. Uh, and yet at the same time, I'm, like I think a lot of people in my field, I take faith very seriously. I sometimes joke that you know, scholars of religion tend to look at faith the way that a biologist looks at a microbe. You know, it's like this mm -hmm. thing, it's this thing that's out there and that you, you analyze. Uh, but I don't think about that that way. I, I, I value and, and find enormous legitimacy in people's faith experiences, and I'm very interested in understanding them, not in criticizing them. Um, so let's back up a, a little bit. I take it you were born in Iran, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, so, I was born in Iran. My family left Iran um, in '79 after the revolution. So, so how how did they manage to escape? You know, we got lucky. We I, we were really uh, we left just before um, everything shut down, right before the the hostage crisis, and you know it was at a time in which if you were willing to you know pay everything that you had and leave everything behind, you could get out. And we, you know, it's nothing more than just dumb luck, to be honest. How old were you at the time? Seven. I was seven so you, years so old. So you probably have and, memories, uh, obviously, of, of that experience. Yeah, I mean, as you, as, you can, as you can probably imagine, it was a traumatic experience for me, but it was one that, that really seared itself in my, in my unconscious. And particularly the power that religion has to transform a society for good and for bad is something that never left me. I did not grow up in a religious family. On the contrary, my father was a deeply anti-religious man, always has been. Uh, you know, he went to his, his death, uh, you know, a, a uh, exuberant atheist. And, um, and my mother was, you know, just kind of a lukewarm cultural Muslim, uh, you know, somebody who, who would, you know, do all the holidays, basically, like mm -hmm. most, most people, I think, of, of faith would, would, would identify in that way. 
Um, but I've even as a child was, was deeply interested, fascinated by religion, religious history, religious phenomenology, um, and and I think it probably 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 had to do with, my, with those childhood experiences of, of leaving Iran and and seeing the power that religion had to transform the, the society first for good in getting rid of a you know ruthless and bloodthirsty dictator and then for bad in replacing it with just another kind of dictatorship. So how did your parents then react when you converted to Christianity and, and you know, probably had the, um, you know, <laughs> the enthusiasm of a convert, I would imagine, as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the first thing you have to do is go and convert everybody else. Um, you know, my father just thought it was insane, you know. I mean, he just thought the entire thing was, was crazy and absurd, and, and he basically just laughed it off. My mother, however, was intrigued, um, and you know she saw some of the changes that that uh, I underwent, and ultimately I was able to actually convert her, and she is to this day a, a deep and faithful Christian. Um, what changed? I mean, what changes were you sort of a wild kid before that, and then you buckled down that sort of thing, like kind of a traditional, the, the traditional experience yeah, the as we know it. Story. Yep, exactly. The usual, yeah, exactly. The usual story. So I mean, then, that really is, I think. What is what is really appealing, I think, in in some of these, um, you know, religious traditions is that the 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 morality that they preach is appealing to a broad spectrum of people. There's no question about it. Um, and so then you went to uh, to school and you actually took a a sort of academic. You engage in the academic study of religion, and it sort of starts to shatter right. your worldview a little bit. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. you, well, you, you know, know, I, I saw the kind of person. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I sort of saw this happen when I was a comparative religion major at Tufts in like early 2003. There was this guy, I think he, there was this guy in the class who, um, in my, you know, the, the, the New Testament class who, you know, clearly was like an evangelical, you know, you know grew up in, in the tradition. And like, he couldn't accept that when the Bible said, God said so-and-so, it doesn't actually mean that God said so-and-so. It means that someone wrote God uh, yeah. said so-and-so. And that just like, it took him all semester to like wrap his head around that very idea. But then once it was, <laughs> his mind was just blown, I think. I imagine this probably yeah. something similar happened to you. Something somewhat similar, yeah. I mean, it's an old story. There's no question about it. Um, and you know, I myself have uh, experienced students that I teach go on, you know, and have a similar experience. Um, I, you know, it. I've never been the kind of person who uh, just simply takes other people's word for things. You know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it a hundred percent. And so, from the beginning, when I, you know, converted to this very fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. Um, you know, I would go to church and I would hear the preacher say something, and unlike the rest of my friends, I would then go home and look it up. And so very early on, I started to conflict with my church and with my community because, you know, I would go back and say, ah, actually, that's not what it says, or actually, it could be really seen in a different way. Um, and the response that I, that I got from my community was not a positive one, as you can imagine. <laughs> and so... When I went to university and decided that this is what I was going to do for a living, um, I was already primed for that kind of uh, inquiry. And, uh, and so getting the, the historical and literary and cultural analysis of these religious traditions uh, was, it, it, it was, a, it was not just eye-opening, but it was, it was so exciting for me. I really, really loved what I was doing. Um, 
I mean, you know, I, I, I maintained my faith. Uh, I just removed my faith from any particular religious tradition. I mean, I still, I understood what religion was, that it's nothing more than a set of symbols and metaphors, a language to express faith, but it's a language made up by human beings. And it's useful, there's no question, it's useful the way that English is useful in order to communicate certain sentiments. But uh, but it's just that. It's nothing more mm-hmm. than a language. And, and that faith is something else. It's something mysterious and, and, and indefinable. And, and so I became uh, interested in studying religion, but uh, I maintain you know, a sense of faith uh, for myself. That, now, that, that, was that separate division that you describe is, I think, hard for some people to get and to understand who maybe don't have the same appreciation for like the academic study of religion. And I take it that was yeah. probably the root of that that Fox News episode that um, you know kind of blew up that went viral, right? I mean, what what's going through your head when when the questioner is asking those questions? I'm really glad you said it just right. You said it exactly like someone who has studied religion in an academic environment, because I think what was fascinating to me about that Fox News interview is that everybody just kind of put their own interpretation on it. For a lot of people, it was you know a conservative versus liberal. For a lot of people, it was Christian versus Muslim. Um, for some people, it was faith versus lack of faith, that that was, you know, the argument being had. But for me, it was very clear where the misunderstanding uh, lied. I mean, the, the problem was that she, like so many people of faith, could not fathom that religion is an academic discipline, that it's something that you go and study, that you do so in a secular environment, but you study, you can study Christianity as a scholar. <laughs> you study its history, its sociology, its myths, its rituals, its, its um, you know, literary and cultural influences, etc. I think that was the real problem to me, uh, the inability to understand that. I mean, obviously, nobody would say to, you know, a German uh, uh, expert in in art history, how dare you study French Impressionism, right? Mm. Nobody would say something like that. That's <laughs> insane, because people understand, oh, art history is an academic discipline, and you can just go and study it. But it's the idea that religion is one, too, is, is really hard for people to get. And I understand that. I mean, listen, partly, not partly, mostly, that's our fault. It's because scholars mm. of religion spend so much time talking you know, to each other in their highly stylized and specialized language that nobody else understands, let alone has patience for. Mm-hmm. And so little time actually translating our research, our work into a, in a language that a, the, a popular uh, audience can uh, be attracted to, that of course we're looked at mm-hmm. in in these kind of you know untrustworthy ways. And, well, that's why you know, I'm, that, that's I'm partly yeah. our fault. I mean, I, I that's why I'm I'm excited that like you know to be talking to you, but also why you know that you exist. I feel like you're the guy to bring Durkheim to the masses. Um, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you know I. You came on my radar, I think, around the time of No God But God. Like, what was that, like 2003, 2004 was published? Around uh, then? Yeah, around there, yeah. So, uh, 2005, I guess. 2005. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm probably projecting here, uh, so disabuse me of this notion. But I would, ima- you know, I would imagine that you know, the experience of being a Muslim in America after 9-11 was 
maybe disorienting in a way or 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 or, you know it it was it was had to have been very very tough um to what extent was your decision to write that book a sort of like reaction to what you experienced personally or or you know in in your community well so at the time i was actually a professor of uh, islamic and middle eastern studies at the university of iowa and i had a very popular course um on the introduction to islam and then when 9-11 happened I sort of became, uh, you know, not just the university spokesperson, but the state spokesperson. I was actually the first full-time professor of Islamic and Middle Eastern studies in the history of the state of Iowa. Um, so there was just me. <laughs> and, and I was going around, you know, having a lot of conversations with um, university groups, with government organizations, with community organizations. And, of course, at the same time, you know, listening to all the just nonsense that was being said um, on the news and, and online and realized, wow, like people really don't know what they're talking about when they talk about Islam or when they talk about the Middle East. And the people who do know what they're talking about are totally inaccessible. You know, they're just, they speak in a language that even turns me off and I'm, you know, I'm one of them. And so what I wanted to do was really put to, you know, put to use my scholarly knowledge and my ability as a writer, I was getting my MFA at the, uh, in fiction at the Our Writers Workshop, um, to, to create something that you know, people that would normally never pick up a book on the history of Islam would, would want to read. Um, and I thought that it would be popular. I thought that people would like it, but I really was surprised. I really was shocked that it became such a sort of international uh, bestseller. I mean, it really shows that people were desperate, desperate for something like it, something that that was not just accessible, but also explains sort of the complexities of this, you know, second largest religion in the world and, and didn't treat it in the simple, simplistic, uh, you know, polarizing way that everybody else was treating it. And I think that, you know, it was just, again, one of those things where it was in the right place at the right time, I guess. Do you have any sort of evidence or, or any um, notion that the book um, you know, changed how policymakers talked about Islam in particular or the Bush administration at the time um, you know, started talking about Islam? I don't know anything about the administration itself. I do know that you know, almost everyone at counterterrorism was reading it. I, I know that uh, it, was a, it was a required uh, book for CENTCOM, um, uh, which of course is the... the the sort of military base mm-hmm. that that is it revolves Tampa. around the Middle East. Centcom yeah. is that, yeah. Um, and um, and you know diplomatic circles certainly. I mean it, it. And I and I did speak you know quite frequently um, to various um, Congress people and and I testified in Congress a, a, a number of times. Did, did a lot of work with the FBI and with counterterrorism, but. Uh, Insofar as the administration itself, no, I never got any kind of um, any kind of message from them at all. Um, so, th- this book, obviously, you know, it was a big hit. Um, did it change your your life or career in any meaningful way? Well, it made me something that I had no intention of being, which was the spokesperson for Islam in America. You know that that's a that's a terrible position for any person to be in, you know, because you're talking about, you know, the, a very uh, diverse, eclectic religion. And listen, 
you know, a an expert on world religions should not be, you know, your spiritual guide. It, so that was weird. On the one hand, you know, I, I became kind of the media's go-to person to explain Islam. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a lot of Muslims, you know, uh, were who were desperate for a book like this, right? Because they themselves were like, oh, finally, like these are the things that I actually believed, but I had no idea that there was, you know, an explanation for it, and that, you know, that that I can I can have these views as a Muslim and 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 um and also you know be gay and also be progressive and also like have you know a different viewpoint than other people have, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But as much as I appreciated that, I was inundated by, you know, people would write me with for spiritual advice. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a Muslim and my boyfriend is Christian and I don't know how to you know talk to my dad about it. Can you help? No, I can't. I'm not your. I am not your imam. I cannot help in that in that regard. Well, did you uh, ever think? But, I mean, you know, these are your, your faith is obviously important to you. Uh, in a way, I think that's not 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 very common, I guess, among academics of religion. Did you ever think about going to theology? Not school? at all. No, and you know, I mean, the, the book that I'm working on now has some theological elements to it, but I'm just I try to explain this to people all the time. I am not a theologian. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've read a I've read a ton of theology. Um, I I like it, but uh, I think the problem with theology is that so much of it is based on the notion of proof and mm-hmm. I always say to people that there is absolutely no proof either for the existence or the non-existence of God, and anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to convert you. Mm -hmm. Um, Faith is a choice, and that's all it is, but it's not an irrational choice, or at least it need not be an irrational choice. Um, That it's a choice that is deeply a part of the human condition, that that can be traced 400,000 years in human history. Um, that is in many ways stamped upon our DNA is is an is part of our evolutionary process, and that should be taken seriously the same way that love is taken seriously mm-hmm. um, as as part of the human condition as part of you know a natural human response to uh, the material world and and I think that when I speak like that. I think that there's a a lot of people in the middle who are attracted to that kind of of uh conversation but the reason that I have so many people who who you know obviously hate me <laughs> is because that is a a a sort of an understanding of faith that is not appealing to the extremes mm-hmm. either to the extreme religious who who for them it's not it's not that this is a metaphor for something else you know the metaphor is the thing itself you know, if you're a mm-hmm. if you're a but, Christian, the yeah. Christian metaphors are, is the thing itself. That's the thing that you're believing in. It's not it's not standing for something else. And then, of course, on the flip side of that is the anti-theist uh, fringe. You know, for whom any the idea of faith is not just irrational; it's stupid, and that religion the, is the inherently Bill evil and has to be yeah and mm-hmm. has to be forcibly removed from society. See, I guess so. What, you know, what, I don't have a, mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of friends in those in those two groups. Yeah, I, I guess what bothers me about those like militant atheists and listen, I'm probably an atheist. You know, I'm, I'm agnostic atheist, whatever. But but the the um, I guess what 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 
bothers me so much is how, you know, they vilify religion as being inherently one thing or the other when it's not. You know, it's just an expression of of the societies, yeah. the individuals in which, you know, that create these rituals that, you know, that, that you're about to go explore, I suppose. It's so silly and simplistic and unsophisticated. And worst of all, it's in the guise of sophistication and reason. Mm-hmm. And yet it's the most irrational argument that one can make, you know, is that faith or religion is this one thing. And it's this one thing for everyone. And by the way, when confronted with the fact that it's not one thing for everyone, the response uh, of, of a lot of these guys, and I've had numerous debates with them, public debates with them, is that, well, the people who don't see faith or religion in the way that I do aren't really Christians. They're not really Muslims, you know. If you don't go around chopping off hands uh, and stoning adulterers, then you're not really a Muslim because you're not really taking your scriptures seriously. If you don't hate gay people, then you're not really a Christian because you're not taking the scriptures seriously. Uh, And again, I don't even have to argue against that view. Just simply stating it is, is an indication of how unsophisticated that viewpoint is. And by the way, let me just clarify something. This is not a criticism of atheism. (laughs) Again, atheism is just simply, I don't believe that there is a God, and so therefore I don't follow any religion. That is a very smart, rational, and and perfectly reasonable response to, to reality. You know, if you're a materialist, if you believe nothing exists beyond the material world, fantastic. I have no problem with that. That's a really you know, a, a perfectly fine, and I would say imminently uh, reasonable uh, viewpoint. My problem is with the anti-theist movement, or the so-called new atheists, who really, frankly, give atheism a bad name, because for them, it's not just, I don't believe in God, it's anyone else who believes in God is an imbecile, and they have to be forcibly, you know, uh, uh, their minds have to be forcibly camps. changed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, and that to me is just is 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 nonsense. I mean, we're 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 just about out of time. I don't know if you have a few more minutes to talk about the origins of Zeller. Sure. Um, sure. So yeah, where absolutely. I guess so so where did you, the idea of of writing Zealot come from? Well, it goes back to the the experience that I was saying. You know, when I when I went to college, I I realized that most of what I thought I knew about Jesus was incomplete. That there was actually a great chasm between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, that in fact there were two different people. They really were. Um, that the Christ of faith was a, a version, an interpretation um, of the historical Jesus, and that the historical Jesus was far more fascinating, you know, I mean, just really much more interesting as a character to me. And even though I eventually, you know, stopped being a Christian and I stopped worshiping Jesus as God, I became a far more, I think, uh, zealous follower of Jesus the man, this sort of first century Jew. Uh, And that's, by the way, that's the key right there, right? People ask me, what's the difference between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history? I can, I can, you know, it takes me a long time to answer that question, but I can answer it in one sentence. The Christ of faith is a Christian, uh, you know, a, a spiritual celestial being who invents a brand new religion. The Jesus of history was a Jew preaching Judaism to other Jews. That's it. And at least, and, at least compared to other religious traditions that are much older, it's sort of easier to study the New Testament. It's easier to study Jesus because there are other contemporaneous, you know, historical documents that give you hints as to like who he was and what life was like when he was around. 
as opposed to like well, Moses, which is you know, no, <laughs> that's actually okay. yeah, Moses. Moses is a completely legendary a character. Yeah, right, there are right. Very, very few people who would say that Moses existed. Of course, but um, the problem with Jesus is that, and this is, I think, the real conflict is that in his lifetime, he was nobody, right? And that's the problem, is that almost. Everything ever written about Jesus was written by his followers, people who believed mm-hmm. that he was God incarnate. And that, that material is not very useful in reconstructing the historical Jesus. Um, so, you know, you can't, really, you can't treat the New Testament like it's, a, like it, like it's history, like it's mm-hmm. biography, because it's not. It's actually a theological argument about the nature of Jesus as God, not a historical document about what Jesus actually said or did. Um, and once but you through methods, that, like, but through methods like like redaction criticism and and parsing the text, you can figure out some some common elements and, and truths, though historical truths, I would imagine. What what you can do is get as close as possible to what the historical Jesus most likely said and did. That's as close as you can get. Um, and even that is, you know, very much clouded in, in, uh, in sort of, you know, tradition and theology. Um, in fact, a number of scholars would say you can't even get there. But I, I disagree. I think that you can, you can use these um, critical um, exegetical methods to, you know, get, get somewhere around like what is most likely to be historically accurate and what is less likely to be historically accurate. But that's it. That's as good as you can get. <laughs> you know, more likely to be accurate. That's as good as you can get. Um, but what is amazing is that while we may know very little about, you know, the, the Jesus of history himself, we know almost everything about the world in which he lived. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was an era of first century Palestine that was exhaustively documented, thanks in no small part to the Romans who occupied this land. And, you know, whatever you want to say about the Romans, they were pretty good at documentation. And so it's a very simple process that scholars of the historical Jesus have been doing for more than a century, which is you take what little we know about Jesus and we, you place him firmly in his time and place, a time and place that we know a great deal about, and you allow the time and place to, uh, you know, to construct his biography. And then you use the Gospels to try to fill in the holes the best that you can. And the result of that as historical experiment is a Jesus that is far more revolutionary, far more politically radical um, than I think one finds uh, in the kind of turn-the-other-cheek, celestial, not-of-this-world Christ that you read in the Gospels. Um, so you have your CNN show coming up. Any other projects you want to you wanna talk about, you want to plug before I let you go? Yeah, well, what I'm most excited about is, um, you know, we've developed and uh, and now finished shooting a pilot for ABC uh, based on the story of King David. Um, huh. It's called Kings and Prophets. And, uh, you know, we haven't gotten the green light for series yet, but we're hoping to get that in the next week or so. But it's it's a really amazing, dramatic retelling. I mean, imagine sort of, uh, you know, uh, Game of Thrones meets the Bible. Um, and it's something that ABC has never tried before, and, and, I, and we're all really, really excited about so it. So King, King David's going to be the main character? 
Not in the first season. The in the first season, okay. King Saul. King Saul is the main Saul. character in the first season. But David, David is obviously like you know, the, one of the main characters. Yeah, Ray Winstone, the great Win, great, the great Ray Winstone plays Saul, um, and uh, it's I think it's something that people are gonna just love when they see. So what, I, I guess how are you writing the script for that? Are you just kind of going through um, you know the 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 Hebrew Bible and, and trying to pick out good stories that you could elaborate very, that you could, you could tell? It's a, ve- it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a loyal retelling of the story. The story, you know, we don't make anything up. We don't have to. The story is insane. Mm-hmm. It's, the first, it's the first soap opera. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you know, David killed his friends and, you know, slept with everyone. And uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a remarkable story. Um, but, you know, we are, we are dramatizing it, and so mm-hmm. we're really focusing on on filling in the holes and building the relationships, but it is um, a faithful recounting of the biblical story. Well, this sounds fascinating. You know, you know, I'm on board. <laughs> um, <well> thank <laughs> yeah, you. You'll love it. You'll love it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I love this. It's funny. Most of these conversations tend to focus on foreign policy events, but it's rare I get to have like <laughs> a comparative religion nerd out. So I, I appreciate you giving I'm me bad. the opportunity. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. It was a really enjoyed the conversation. Big thank you to Reza. I look forward to watching his shows. Uh, and if you enjoyed this interview, I suggest you go to globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can find other interviews in which foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries discuss their life and career. Lots of great content up there. Most of it is evergreen. So go check out the archive. Subscribe on iTunes. It's all free. We have an app also free. So download that. And if you love it, leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye.